Welcome to Boiling Point, the podcast to motivate ever-evolving entrepreneurs and forward-thinking movement pioneers. Our hosts, filmmaker Greg Hemmings and executive coach Dave Vale, are turning up the heat in the world's business communities. Our interviews with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers are raising the temperature of inspiration. Live from the hottest studio in this quadrant of the universe, here are Dave and Greg. So I'm actually going to start this podcast as we're preparing. Uh, so we're, we're, we're rolling right now. And uh, we've, we've got our guest, Dave, uh, Chris Boudreaux, literally walking into, uh, into the Boiling Point uh, sound booth. And he's undressed already. Like, this is incredible. He, he has heard about the, the heat and of the, the, of the Boiling Point booth. Um, so far, so good, eh? Uh, there's no menage going on here, okay? <laughs> That's French for something. <laughs> so uh, this is really exciting to have, to have uh, Chris. There's very f- few people who've actually been inside the booth. Uh, you're, you're amongst a very uh, special elite uh, crew. I wish we could have all of our, our guests in here. Uh, so Chris, welcome to the, the Boiling Point. Uh, Chris is a, is a good friend of both Dave and I. So this is an interesting one because usually the two of us can kind of kind of mess with each other and like uh, tr- try to test each other about. I know, wouldn't do that. Of course not. Well, mess with each other. <laughs> but Dave, why don't, I, what, I, what goes on in this booth? I'm just curious. Well, because it's radio or audio. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, you know, sorry. You'll yeah. never know, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Um, Dave, why don't you do a quick intro uh, <laughs> for us and then we'll uh, we'll do what we do. All right. Well, Chris, thanks for coming in. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so Chris is, I would call him like a serial entrepreneur. Okay, um, he has always got his hands on something. He's actually my peer coach. So uh, we've mentioned the Wallace McCain Institute a few times, and and uh, he and I are in a in a, one of the business groups together, and we were saddled up as peer coaches. And so I've got to know Chris really well over the last few years. He's done a number of things. Um, the latest, the thing that we're going to talk about today, is uh, level the curve, LTC Energy. And that he co-founded with uh, with our wonderful friend Alain. Yes, yes. In 2014, and uh, the mandate is that LTC fills a gap in the energy industry by connecting new technologies for renewable and carbon reduction power generation. And there's more to it, but I'm going to leave it at that. Obviously, I'm reading. Um, I know a little bit about this, but um, I have learned from Chris a whole whack about the energy sector. So uh, over to you, Chris. You tell us a little bit, of, unless you want to say your piece too, Greg. I don't, I don't have a piece, except <laughs> you, you, told, you told me that he's a serial entrepreneur. I was, I was wondering if it was Fruit Loops or Shreddies. Uh, Krispies. Rice Krispies. Rice Krispies. <laughs> okay, over to you, Chris. Yeah, great. Well, thanks, thanks, guys, for having me. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, Dave. I mean, it's. Uh, let's just say I, I get into all kinds of different things, and this one in particular is of great interest. And uh, really, what I've been been uh, sort of looking at in terms of opportunities was all about you know how can you make a difference. You know, it's everybody wants to do something, but we want to make a difference. And when Elena and I got together, we looked at this industry and we said, you know, there's something missing. There's nothing really disruptive. There's nothing uh, really changing that we can see. There's been a lot of work in terms of, you know, how do people consume energy? But we were looking at how can you make renewable energy happen in a meaningful way? And then how can we look at storage of energy, which is a big, big problem? I mean, you guys, you guys use batteries here for all kinds of things, and they last only for so long. 
But in the energy industry, you just cannot. I, I don't know what happened here. Get dark all of a sudden. It's, a, it's, it's really intimate. I, I had to turn that light bulb okay, off. Okay, all right. Too hot. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for saving energy, man. I appreciate that. No problem. Okay, any. <laughs> so we, you know, we looked at different ways of of doing things, and and we came up with a couple of concepts. And uh, both Elena and I, sort of working in different areas at, at different times, she was working in energy storage. And energy storage is a big, big thing out there currently, and it's really hard. I mean, you just can't put stuff in batteries and, and, and hope it's going to be cost-effective and work for you. You know, we've got people like Elon Musk doing that inside homes and so on, but we were looking for something that a little bit more, uh, how should we say, environmentally friendly. And Helen had been working on the idea of compressed air energy storage, which is not so much new, but... We're looking at using it in a different way here in New Brunswick, and we've got research and development going on with that, and more particularly, uh, it's compressed air energy storage with storing air in bags underwater and uh, using the pressure, atmospheric pressure of the water to push that air back out and then drive a, an air turbine to create energy. So it's, it's a way for us to be able to store energy in a really cost-effective way and very, very, very low uh, environmental impact. And then we started looking at, well, you know, what are some other ways that we can uh, go out and, and poke around and see if we can make a change in? And one of the areas that I've been looking at was tidal energy. And the problem with tidal energy is that a lot of it is dependent upon flow. So it's intermittent. So, you know, if we go out here in the Bay Funday, you know the tide comes in, then there's sort of a slack time, and then the tide goes out. And, but in that slack time, you can't generate anything because there's no flow. And what we did is we came up with a method to be able to generate energy using the tide, but it actually operates 24-7. So we've, we've taken that now to UMB, and we're doing some additional work on that to, to work out the science, but the concept seems sound, and uh, the professors seem to, to like what we're doing. So we're exploring that, and uh, it's looking very, very good. I'm very excited to hear that, Chris, because we have a natural resource in the Bay of Funday and in Reversing Falls that is unlike anywhere. Like, uh, for, for the listeners not from here we have the highest tides on earth um and how many meters twice a day does that tide rise uh, well, and in in feet i think we're talking about 39 39 feet to 40 feet what's that in meters uh that's three, twice a day about uh what 13 to 14 meters a day so that is a huge mass of potential energy it is and the reason I, I, I had a good chat with Gaetan Thomas, um, CEO of uh, MB Power, a few weeks ago, and I asked him about Tidal. And he's v they're very excited about Tidal, except for the current price of it right now is just not, uh, it's not viable. That's why it's so exciting to see innovators in the space coming in to make it viable. So w w what's, what's your response to that concept, uh, Chris? Because we need it. We've got it right there, the bay. You know, and so many other places in the world have the same phenomenon of tide that, that, that we do as well. So, and is there a big race to get this, this technology out right now? There, there has been a big race, and, and most of it, actually almost all of it that we've been researching has been based upon the flow. So, you know, which the tide comes in, the tide goes out. And what they're doing is they're putting these turbines in the flow of it. So, for instance, over in Pictou and, and other areas globally, what they'll do is they'll take a turbine with fins on it and they'll put it down the water flow. And as the water comes in and out, it turns that turbine and creates electricity. And that can be pretty pretty costly. Um, the reason why it's costly is that the last experiment they did, for instance, Picto, they, they put the uh, this beautiful big turbine down underneath the water, put it in the floor bed, and they brought it up uh, about three or four weeks later. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
three or four weeks later, and every blade on the actual turbine was gone. And it was gone because of the strength of the flow, more importantly, what is being pushed in that flow from rocks to waterlogged logs to you name it. These are missiles basically traveling through, and they rip the, the fins right off of these things. So now they're trying a new technology which they've just put into the, into the water, a different design, uh, which hopefully is going to be able to you know, bear more fruit. The other alternative for the flow is that they'll actually build a dam or, or block up an estuary, which from an ecological perspective is just brutal. You know, you're, you're cutting off migration of fish, you're, you're affecting the environment. And uh, really, that, that's just, for us, it, when we looked at the problem, we said, this is just something we'd never want to be involved in. So how can we do something that has a small footprint and can generate 24-7? We don't have to deal with, you know, the, the, you know, the violence that happens on, on the seabed floor when you have that level of flow happening. Um, so tell us a little bit uh, about, I mean, this whole concept of, you know, peak time. You know, and, and, and what that means to the energy sector and, and maybe how that's created an opportunity for LTC or, or a potential opportunity. Yeah, I think the best way to explain to everybody is that, you know, during a normal day, uh, let's say that's the province of New Brunswick, there's you basically use a sort of a set amount of energy. And that set amount of energy is probably around 1,400 megawatts and it's in the run of a day. Now, when we get into the middle of winter, and it's minus 32 outside, and everybody's got their heat cranked. And, and it, That uh, doesn't happen here. No. Never. No, never, never. And we don't get snow either. No, <laughs> not for seven months last year. <laughs> so what happens is that when you get into that time, there's a huge demand for energy. And you go from 1,400 megawatts to almost 3,500 megawatts. And the thing is, is that to generate that extra energy costs a lot of money. You know, uh, in New Brunswick alone, if we look at at the situation in terms of, of the, you know, the sale of energy to people is 11 cents per kilowatt hour. And when you have to generate peak with some of these facilities that are in place, they use really expensive fuels uh, and they only run very, very limited amount of time, but they have to be there by mandate, by government mandate and by policy. So you have these facilities that are in place that have to be paid for. They have a CapEx and an OpEx for it. And you end up costing you 36 cents per kilowatt hour to generate. That's a big expense, and it's, it's really tough to be able to, to run a utility when you're trying to deal with peak times. So therein lies an opportunity. Absolutely, Dave. And that's really what, what we've been, uh, we've been looking that, at. You see that, Greg? Yeah. <laughs> I, may, yeah. I may know a little of this story, but this is very... I, this, I learned a whole bunch about this sector from this man here. <laughs> so so what, we, uh, what we ended up doing is saying, well, how can we look at lowering that cost? Because, you know, really and truly for us, the opportunity is on, on peak. And... Uh, we said to ourselves that we really do need to, to see about what we can do about this. And the other thing about the, the peak generation is all about the fact that the fuels that they use are brutal. So they use, for instance, either fuel oil or heavy bunker or, you know, there's high carbon fuel, which is coal. And coal is very, very cheap, but obviously from a carbon perspective, it's huge. And so what we looked at is saying, well, how can we make it appealing for energy producers to look at alternative fuels. And uh, we sat down and we thought long and hard and we said, well, let's look at liquefied natural gas and small, what we call small scale. So we're not like like the Repsol here. They've got a fantastic business. They, they bring the stuff in, they ship it out, but they're going to a mass market 
And, you know, if they send their stuff down to Boston, well, New Brunswick is basically a suburb of Boston, right? <laughs> Let's face it, all of New Brunswick together is a suburb of uh, Boston. So their target market is really, really not us. So how do you how do you fulfill a small market? And we looked at that and we said, well, you know, we can do some small-scale LNG distribution. And so we worked hard to, to get the license for that here in New Brunswick. And we're looking at, at ways to be able to to leverage that for both for generation, power generation, and also for consumers of industry that require a new fuel. Because let's face it, you know, fuel oil and others are, are far more expensive. So we've come up with this, this uh, I guess, opportunity where we can actually walk into energy producers and also to industry saying, look, we, we've got a lower cost fuel for you and a way to get it to you that you've never had before. And uh, that's where we saw the business opportunity. Fantastic. And is, is that something you can share at this point, or is that still under wraps? Like uh, getting a, a cheaper fuel to... <laughs> so sorry. I, okay. I don't know why we haven't figured this out yet. Me? Yeah, okay. Well, uh, it's okay to talk about this. Every <laughs> single podcast. Yeah. I don't even have an iTunes on. We're running off my iPhone. Right. Uh, iTunes is not even on. But usually around the 20-minute the mark, a song plays. It's just an automatic thing. I don't understand it. So if Tim Cook is listening to this podcast, please give me a call and let me know, or, or anybody knows how to turn this thing off. Um, <laughs> so we get these random, like the first one was Dave's, uh, Katy Perry came on, right in the middle of our interview. Anyway, back on track. Well, all I'm going to say is that both times I went off, it went off with your voice. So there's something Damn. about your voice. That's what that is right there. But back to back to your question though, right? Is that you know there, obviously there's some you know there's some uh, organizations that we're working with that we we can't share, but we you know what I can say is that you know when we made these proposals to these organizations, there was a lot of interest, and and that interest has turned into us having some some agreements in place to to really dig deeper into what we have to offer, and. What it tells us is that we were right with our hunch in terms of the opportunity. And, and we know that if we can get into a position where we can supply uh, a small-scale LNG to the province, it means that gasification of this problem just isn't in you know, St. John and Fredericton and Moncton. There actually is an opportunity to gasify the whole province, which would be massive opportunity for northern New Brunswick. Because any industry that's up there, if we look at you know, MQM, there are several others up there as well that... You know, they're heavy industry. They could really use a lower cost energy in terms of their production. And uh, we know that it would make a huge difference for them up there. Well, and, and there's, there's a big, I mean, there's a big play for industry in this province if we could, you know, stabilize prices, you know, and make it attractive for people to come. I'm, um, uh, on that top, on the topic of, you know, being innovative and strategic, I know you speak on this, Um um, just shifting gears a little bit, Chris. Sure, yeah. But just you know, for our listeners, um, be great. You know, just what do you think about um, the opportunities that exist for for a uh, you know kind of a more smaller rural place, rural place like New Brunswick and other places around North America or Europe or wherever? Um, you know, like what what do you see as the big opportunities to be innovative and strategic? Like what you know what versus being in a big center? Like um, you know, just what's your perspective on that? I think probably. Probably the, the most competitive advantage that New Brunswick has against all others, and it has to do with size, is agility. The, the ability to actually uh, change direction, to pivot, 
to do the things that need to be done with a, with a smaller population, um, a smaller business community, it's much easier to get consensus in terms of change. And if you want to make that change, you can. Um, I found that moving back, you know, I was in Ottawa for 10 years and, and it was great up there. I mean, it's the Silicon Valley of the North, but there was never the collaboration. There was never the cooperation that you get in this part of the country. And I think a lot of that has to do from a culture perspective. Well, and, and like, and you're experiencing that now, right? Like getting to, and I know you, you're saying, right, you know, you're not at liberty to mention the organizations, but <clears throat> you very, very quickly, as I understand, have gotten quickly you know, to the decision makers um, to help support, you know, this business that you guys have created. Um, and I'm guessing that would have been a lot harder when we were in a, in a larger marketplace. You're absolutely right, Dave. Absolutely. And, and I think, again, it comes down to culturally and the size of the, the community that you do have access. And what I really admire about a lot of leaders here in New Brunswick is that you're not dealing with egos. You're really, anyone that I've run into, there's no egos here. It, it's about how can we all get someplace together and, and do it well and succeed. Chris, I, we, we uh, had a guest on last week, um, Mark uh, Logier. <laughs> I'm Mike Logier. <laughs> last week? Was it last week? Mark Pelche, Mark Pelche. <laughs> oh my God. Sorry, Mark. Sorry, Dr. Mark. <laughs> It's the heat in this room is intense. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Thanks for saving me when I when I looked at you. Like, anyway, um, Mark Pelcher. No kidding. <laughs> Ray Bark plays for Boston. <laughs> no, he plays for the Quebec Nordiques. Um, anyway, we were talking to Mark about the constraints yeah. in government in a place like New Brunswick. Yeah. Uh, but we also kind of acknowledge that working within constraints can actually produce a fair bit of innovation, you know, because um, we do have massive constraints here, and so do many other jurisdictions around uh, in places where people are listening. Um, we, we've, we've got, you know, a, a relatively low ego field here. Yeah. We can get in touch with people that we want to get in touch with, and it seems like we can get over those constraints if we get enough, uh, you know, interest from, from thought leaders in the space. What, what, what's your experience in, in that within new, a place like New Brunswick? You know something, what's interesting with constraints is that it forces you to get the data. It forces you to measure. It forces you to project. It forces you to get into a level, level of detail that, you know, if you're in a very, you know, highly optimistic, uh, prosperous environment, you know, you can sometimes get away with something on a napkin. And here, when you have the constraints, it does force you to get the data. And when you finally do make the decision, the decision is definitely in the right direction for the right reasons. And, and that actually helps in terms of success. So what I find, uh, you know, particularly when you're talking about governmental, is that you know, nobody, wants to, nobody wants to wear egg. I mean, failure is, is, failure is always an option, but fear is not, right? But you, you've got to have the right information to make the right decision because if people are going to follow you in, in you know, lockstep, it means that they have to believe in the data that you've got. End of story. Yeah. So, um, you know, just... Wrapping up here, um, a couple qu- uh, just uh, well, I, I think we both probably have a couple of wrap up questions, but I'm curious. You know, I, I mentioned you know the the serial entrepreneur piece and the fact that you know you you get you know you're you got you're involved in a few things and and uh, and it's been interesting just 
from my perspective to watch how you've you know how you've tackled different different things and you know there's been ups and downs and all that kind yep, of thing yep. right um but i'm curious like so so given what you said about you know innovation and being strategic and, and getting data and stuff what are the qualities that you think are you know really critically important for uh, our for our entrepreneurs to have to be successful um in an environment like this and others that are similar to this one when you're talking just one word kept into mind that's perseverance I mean, you, you've got to have you've got to have the guts. You've got to have the the wherewithal to know that you know it's not an easy journey. It's just not, and you've got to be able to, to stand up and work towards something and know that it's going to be hard and that there are going to be challenges. But if you you know, with perseverance comes belief, and you've got to believe in what you're doing. I mean, I don't know how many times I've been in 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 a session with someone where we're doing some mentoring, and and you can tell right away they don't believe in what they're doing. So you have to take them to task. You have to you have to hit the bullshit button and say, you know, this is bullshit. I mean, you, you do you believe in what you're doing? And eventually it comes out, well, no. Then why are you doing it? Because the only way you can persevere is if you do believe in something. So those things sort of go in lockstep. I like that because we do have that culture in New Brunswick of uh, a safety net, uh, per se, of uh, mentors and, and leaders who are like you, Chris, who are encouraging people in that way, saying, you know what, um, like you said earlier, failure is an option. In fact, in many cases, it's encouraged as long yeah. as it's quick. Yeah, uh, exactly. Fear yeah. is not. Um, but how many communities can say that that's kind of the 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 um, manifesto? And I feel like it is here. It's like people are encouraged to try in, in in a place like this in this in this relatively blank canvas that we call New Brunswick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this is the point where we do uh, some takeaways, and we've got the the joy of having Chris in the room with us, Dave. Um, <laughs> so uh, why don't you start, Dave? What, what, what would be one of your takeaways here? Um, what would be my takeaway? I, I think one of the things, uh, quality, he, you talked about perseverance. Chris mentioned perseverance. We're pretending Chris isn't here right now. Um, uh, the other thing that I've um, I've noticed, and that whistling came just out of nowhere. <laughs> Is that your iPhone? Yes. Yes. Um, uh, but, you know, the other th- quality mm-hmm. I've noticed in Chris, and he didn't mention this, but I just keep, as I'm listening to him, is just a level of patience, right? You know what I mean? I mean, being patient enough to gather data and all that kind of stuff. And and I think what impresses me, uh, that quality in, in Chris, is that it's something that I, I is probably I could use a little more of. You know what I mean? Just, just like, hunker down, settle down, get your information right, and think strategically about, you know, um, versus, you know, just kind of rushing into it, right, and trying to make it happen, being frustrated when it doesn't happen. So, um, and the, and LTC and, and what he Chris has described and what I've learned, um, man, it takes a, a certain amount of confidence and also patience to work this through. So, so those are kind of, I mean, not so much from this interview, but just things I really admire of Chris and and I think, uh, and, and qualities that I want to, you know, continue to grow within myself. Yeah, very cool. And I, I would say for me, um, it's just really what you said just a few minutes ago, Chris, about, um, you know, if you're not doing something at the core that you're passionate about or that you believe in, at the very least believe in, then get out. Yeah. You know, it, like yeah. it, it, and many, many people might push back, say, well, not everybody can just leave their job or leave, leave their career. But if you've got an option to get out of something that you don't believe in, um, I think that's a good piece of advice. And I would say that's my takeaway. So, Chris, what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you? Uh, well, you can obviously <laughs> you can email me. Catch me. I'm, I'm obviously on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn as well. And, uh, you know, anytime if anybody wants to get a hold of me, they're and you should, welcome to. It would be good to spell your, spell your name. 
Okay. All right. So it's uh, how you spell the last name is B O U D R E A U. First name Chris. So you can do uh, if you want to get me hold of me at LTC Energy. It's Chris at ltcenergy.ca and uh, email me anytime. I'd be glad to have a conversation. Chris, this is awesome. We're looking forward to uh, speaking with your partner sometime as well. We'll, Absolutely. I warned her. I warned her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great, Chris. Thanks so much, man. All right. Thanks. Much appreciated. And this is a really cozy place here. It is cozy. Absolutely. These podcasts used to be about 45 minutes long. Like, no kidding. Like the first, I don't know, 30. And then (laughs) they were like, "We we can't be in here that long. (laughs) <laughs> so it's like another 25 minutes long and we get up for a fresh air. A little bit of heat stroke going on yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, okay. Thanks, Dave, we'll see you next week, man. All right. All right. Ciao, guys. Thanks for checking out this episode of Boiling Point. Remember to rate and subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Boiling Point Pod. To see more from Dave Vale, check out leadershipunleashed.ca or visioncoachinginc.com. And on Twitter, at Dave underscore Vale. And to catch up with Greg, visit Hemmingshouse.com and at Greg Hemmings on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and remember, keep that pot boiling. Hey, listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. <laughs>